on to the dogs, your fortnightly dose of greyhound racing interviews, insights and a whole lot more with your hosts, Joe Andrews and Danny Jackson. Welcome to episode 21 of Gone to the Dogs. As always, I am Danny Jackson or Danny V. Jackson on Twitter, Instagram and everywhere else. And I'm joined by my co-pilot who's a little bit tired after having the holiday. Yes. Oh, hello. It's me, Joe. I hope you're all well. Yeah, I'm a little, I, I feel like I'm tired a lot when we record these podcasts. <laughs> I feel like I say that in about 50% of the podcasts that I'm tired, but uh, no, I had a lovely holiday in Crete. I'm back. We got back at 4.30 in the morning. Um, so uh, yeah, a little bit, a little bit tired. I need a holiday to recover. <laughs> Don't we all? But um, Danny, yeah. Danny, 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 Danny. Mm-hmm. You've heard of Shelley Ann Fraser Price, mm-hmm. but you've now heard of Danny V. Jackson, the sprinting extraordinaire and winner of the human race at Sheffield. Congratulations. Talk us through it. Um, I, <laughs> to be honest, Rose asked me in the earlier part of this year, so I'm probably talking June, and I thought, brilliant, I'm going to train. So my other half was like, right, we're going to do the couch to 5K, and then you'll be absolutely fine. There'll be a running machine by the time we get there. I did the first session of the first week, about two weeks after she told me I was doing it. And that is it for the couch to 5k because I just didn't want to run anymore. So I then just said to Cliff, I was like, I'm I'm just going to go for it. And all the week prior. So it was about two weeks before that I thought, right, oh my God, it's in two weeks. I've got to start running. I've got to start sprinting. I've got to do something. So I was going to the gym anyway. So, but weightlifting doesn't really equate to running fitness. And then the week before, I got the mother of all colds, couldn't breathe. So I was like, you know what? Let's just eat cake and not run and see how we get on. I think that was your technique on the last podcast. You were feeling a bit under the weather and uh, you'd eaten some cake and that was it. Yeah. And that's that that continued for the two weeks after. And then on the night I'd had three quarters of a bottle of wine, uh, two of my three courses in my uh, three course meal. And then went, I'm just going to go for it. So I actually dug my little feet in, my little feet, dug my feet in, made little grooves, you know, like a starting block. Because I did used to be a sprinter when I was a kid, so I do know how to run. Um, But that was 20 years ago. And I launched myself off, ran, just ran and ran and ran, and then got past Rob at the home turn and thought, I I might be able to do this. Continued, but then the hare joined in, or the rabbit, whoever it was, joined in, and then I went past him. But then, because the shadow, now realise what happened. The shadow of the rabbit thought there was loads of people behind me, so I I went over the line legless, turned around, and was like, "Splendid isolation." Literally nobody here. (laughs) (laughs) It was the weirdest experience because I just I'm not a runner. I've never have been. I've always been a sprinter, but I've never been. I've been a sprinter in swimming. I've never been a runner particularly. And it was the weirdest experience because running on sand, you can see in the video, it's, it looks like slow motion. I don't look I like I thought that was because of the participants quick. rather than the sand. <laughs> no, 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 I'm telling you, because I know I can run quicker than that. And I thought, good God, I look really, really slow. <laughs> but it's the sand, it's horrendous. And I have to say as well, I'm shouting out Nottingham because they let me run on the Monday night just to get a feel for it because I was there commentating oh, the sky. So I said, <laughs> can I just have a run round? You got oh, a free God. run on Nottingham, a I trial. Yeah, I had a, trial. a, a trial, that was an unrecorded trial. I didn't make it round the track though. <laughs> so it was like, I went off like a rocket and thought, well, I don't stay. Apparently I do not stay. 
stayed on the night though, so that's all that matters. But um, well, congratulations! Yeah. And how much did you raise for charity? It was a really good amount. It was a really good amount. It was over five thousand. Oh, it was well over five. It was about seven and a half, eight by the Brilliant. last yeah. count, as far as I know. Um, I know they were still totting up, and there's still a couple of things coming in as well um, from different bookies and um star sports and bresbet they both put in quite a lot of money uh, as well yeah so brilliant yeah that's there, what it was all about so so well done you thank you very much i've retired now i won't be doing it again um i did offer mark pierpoint a match race and he said no so um that's it that's it done <laughs> there you go <laughs> are you gonna do one in the future joe no my knees are shot i can't run anymore uh, so yeah on the is. sand though who knows yeah, just take your shoes off and go for it. It depends where I'd be seated. You know what I mean? If it was if it was towards the front where you were, maybe <laughs> I'd consider it. Yeah, just a freebie off the front. One thing I can't believe is they tried well, they priced me up at ten to one. I wish I'd have had a bet to be honest. I was tempted. If I hadn't have been away and I would have been more, mm. you know, on, on social media more, I think I would have, but I've missed out there because ten to one. Look, we saw the result, it was a huge rick. <laughs> massive rick so well done to anyone that got on did you back, back yourself yes i did aye, aye. <laughs> i mean i just thought i've got 280 meters to run i might need oxygen by the end of it but i can do that yeah that's all i kept thinking i can do that that's that's okay rose was very kind to me so thanks to rose draper as well and hats off to her for organizing it all and to sheffield for um raising all the cash and putting a, a great night on as well it was absolutely rammoed in Sheffield on Tuesday. So really, Brilliant. really good. Well, that's um, good to hear. And obviously the Steel City Cup was the highlight, but I'd like to think the human race maybe took second billing. <laughs> uh, but Joe, how have you been over the last three weeks, apart from, you know, gallivanting away to Crete? Yeah, great. I've been on holiday, so, so fantastic. Um, back to reality now. Yeah. Got eight days holiday left till the end of March. So, uh, <gasps> yeah, it was, uh, it was good. Yeah, yeah. Good. Nothing else to add. Love Sorry, it. that was really that was really boring. It was really boring. <laughs> it's all right. Uh, I'll bring the entertainment and fun, Joe. It's okay. <laughs> I'll tell you what, though, Danny. We what? have seen a fantastic winner of the Champion Stakes at Romford last week, didn't That's we? So Hollow good. Man. Oh, Some dog. He is an aeroplane. Absolutely unbelievable. Yeah, I watched it. watched on the night, then watched it again on the Saturday because I was like, that was a seriously, seriously good run. And then I've seen it again since because I've been on RPG TV and we, we showed the highlight again. And I was just thinking, goodness gracious, like he's so powerful, such a, such a powerful runner. And he's beaten a good field as well. You know, the, mm. the no back numbers in that field. And, oh, it was just, it was unbelievable. Yeah, fantastic early pace. And uh, he's, well, he's seen it out well, hopefully. He'll go head to head with Droopy's Clue at some point. That'll be a nice yeah. little matchup. Um, and speaking of Droopy's Clue, Mm-hmm. Um, we have got the Kent Derby coming up. And do you know, I just forgot about the Steel City Cup winner. Yeah. Swift Iconic. Oh, and you should have reminded me, Danny, because you were there. I know, but like I said, I was so nervous all the way through the night that most of it is a blur. Um, until so nervous or Wednesday. so pissed? A bit of both. A bit of both, yeah. I, I was very nervous, actually. I didn't sleep for the two nights before because I kept waking up having dreams about running. <laughs> it was horrific that's why I'm never doing it again I lost sleep I just it, my legs hurt for about three days after no chance um but I hats off to all the greyhounds that run around sand every day because I couldn't do it all the time and swift iconic I mean he popped out he made all it was 
pretty much game over very early on. Kulamani Shadow obviously was sent off favourite, but was just bumped and checked all over the track. It was a really unfortunate run for Shadow, um, and he came last in the end. Obviously, Ryoka Joey was ruled out lame. Uh, he was supposed to be in six, but Swift Iconic, he won by four and a quarter lengths, and he just blasted out the boxes and made every yard. So really, really good winner, Swift Iconic, for John Mullins, and it was a great night overall. Yeah, very fast dog on his day. Um, so two great winners, Swift Iconic and Hollow Man. Obviously, well done to all the other greyhounds that have won in the last three weeks as well, no matter what the level. But um, we've got some amazing finals coming up, haven't we, over the next few days. We've got the Puppy Collar at Oxford tonight. Um, we were lucky enough to be in that with, with Lauren last year and we had a really good night. Um, at the track, you've got the racing, Premier Ground Racing Oaks coming up too and the Kent Derby at Central Park on Sunday. So uh, three really top quality finals to look forward to. Uh, yeah, we'll be diving into that, um, Joe and I, at the end of the pod, uh, as we usually do with the betting. So we'll uh, have our quick thoughts on who we think is going to win the three big ones over the weekend, because it is set to be an absolute stellar that weekend of Greyhound Racing action. But for now, we are going to dive into a fascinating interview with the Greyhound stars, Floyd Amphlett. on the Gone to the Dogs podcast is Mr. Floyd Amphlett. Floyd, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. And uh, are you looking forward to the podcast? Yeah, it seems a bit weird to be on the on the receiving end. And really, <laughs> I thought I should be interviewing you after your athletic exploits, Danny, but you know. <laughs> oh, no, no, I've not given any interviews. I gave a soundbite to uh, JK and that's it. That's my lot because I've retired now and, and I'm not doing any more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. I did say to Andrew uh, Mascarenas that it's the worst piece of grading I've ever seen in my life. But... <laughs> You've got to come back as a defending champ, though. Now, surely, but you just got to start a, bit, a little bit further back than that that Rick that they put you in at. Well, I did say to Mark Pierpoint, "Should we have a match race?" And he was like, "Well, no, because I collapsed after the end, and you were still on your feet, so it's not a fair fight." <laughs> like, fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I think we've both retired from running around Greyhound Stadiums and it's open to anybody else that would like to do it. Uh, right, Floyd, we'll dive into the questions. Uh, just tell us a bit about yourself and how it all started with Greyhound Racing. Uh, this is going to be long. This is going to take the whole podcast. Um, <laughs> I'll do it as, as quickly as I can. Uh, first went racing when I was 12, Wimbledon. I used to live in Wimbledon. Um, then... Um, Tom was 14. My, my dad dad was always always loved dogs. Used to go racing in the Midlands back in the late 50s and 60s. And um ended up working. We moved to Aldershot, worked in a flapping kennel, all sort of school holidays and weekends, and and uh, from working for a guy called Phil Potter. At 16, I left home and went to work at Northor, the the GRA's big kennel um just outside Potter's Bar. Um, so leaving home at 16, I, I think it's fair to say I kind of lost my innocence fairly quickly. Um, then my parents then moved on. They had some kennels. I bought some kennels um, in Suffolk, went back home. And uh, I mean, we were racing at Yarmouth, breeding, had stud dogs, Matt Silver and Pat Seymour and brood bitches and you name it. We did some rearing. Um, 
couldn't make it pay. In the meantime, um, I went to the into the racing office at Cambridge, which was a fabulous place at the time. The, 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 I could talk 10 minutes about just the trainers we had there. It was an incredible place. Um, after a while, decided I was fed up of being skinned. I was doing a lot of running around and decided to leave um, and get out of dogs. But it never kind of works. I'd started to do some writing because I was I was reasonable at English and um, started to work for a, a magazine called Greyhound Magazine. Some people may remember it. So after struggling for a while, I went to the police and um, I, I did my two years probation, then went to, uh, was posted to, first of all, Milden Hall, believe it or not, and then um, to Brandon. So... First of all, I used to go to Milden Hall or, or literally patrol around Milden Hall when the before the dog track ever turned up there. And then in the meantime, um, obviously, I stayed in touch. I was doing my greyhound writing and um, it was right on very, very close. The edge of the beat was very within probably a couple of hundred yards of Mark Wallace's kennel and uh, actually in Lakenheath. But gradually I did I did my three years. I took my sergeant's exam. Didn't even have time to get the get the result because I was offered a job by Greyhound Star. Um, because because of my background, Greyhound Star was basically uh they were all professional journalists, Fleet Street journalists, and they were owners at Henlow. And they set up, they decided to take on Greyhound magazine and uh said, because I had the Greyhound background and could write. Um, they bought the Greyhound magazine out and they wanted some Greyhound magazine content. And I very nearly, that was kind of one of the big turning points in my life. It was one of those times when I very nearly said, no, if I'm going to stay in the police, I'm going to do it properly. I'm going to go for all my exams because I, I was reasonably reasonably able. And uh, and after a long, toughest decision of my life, then decided to jack the police in and join the Greyhound star um pretty soon they made me editor because it was a monthly newspaper at the time that was 1987 um and then eventually they diversified I continued to run the star on my own and in the end I said listen you know I'm the guy that's making money for you I've, unless you kind of sell it to me I shall just go and do something set up in opposition because I've had loads and loads of promises and, and nothing had ever come through. And they realised that I was right. So they did very well out of me, but they taught me journalism. They were all professional. One was a Daily Mirror night editor and there were various other people. But we remained friends. We got through it despite the kind of the, the trauma. And um, after doing that, running it on my own, eventually, of course, we had to the new days of the news monthly newspaper were just about at an end and then we went online I think eight eight nine years ago and uh that's that's pretty much it um my family've got a background as I said my dad was on the British Ground Racing Federation as the breeders representative in the early 80s he was also promoter at Cambridge at the time when I was in the racing office so he kind of I was always up to speed with the politics and knew what was going on so um that's kind of some of it. It's not all of it, but that's that's a kind of a decent chunk anyway. And and just go back, I don't want to put you on the spot, but you mentioned Cambridge and some of the stories you've got there. Does anything stand out from that? Sounds like a colourful time for you. Um it wasn't so much um I mean we, we had some it was a great atmosphere there. We were the first permit track, uh first permit track to get a a bags contract. 
And just if I kind of explain that our trainers at the time, we had um, Nick Sava, um, we had his brother Theo Menzies, we had Gary Baggs, Joe Cobbold, Gary Baggs, uh, sorry, who else? Um, Frida Greenacre. We, it was like an all-star. Uh, Pat Mullins was training at the time. John's dad was training at the time. Um, and, it, oh, it was an all-star cast. We it, it, we could have beaten anybody in any kind of intertrack. It, it was absolutely fabulous. I loved it. Really loved it in the racing office. It was a good, great experience as well. Now, when we're talking about the Greyhound star, what are some of the biggest stories that you've covered over the years? I was trying to think about that. Um, I think a lot that really kind of used to get to me was I, I had a bit, I always had a bit of a chip on my shoulder about the kind of the ground authorities um, and to see them brought to book the old NGRC who were a horrendous organization. They, they were, they were like a, such a, a bunch of bullies the way they used to pick on the trainers. Um, and I took them on several times front page stories about them. And it got really quite personal. Um, they were producing statements, you know, stupid Greyhound star, didn't know what they're talking about. And in fact, we did. So we had all kinds of things where they were blagging it on things like drugs tests. Oh, we can test for this or it won't test for that. And I went and did my research and spoke to the scientists and came back and said, you're talking crap. You, you don't know what you're talking about. You're fining trainers. They had they had issues with, with, with certain trainers. I mean, there was a good example with Pat Rosney, um, where they didn't want Pat was I knew Pat from his flapping days and um, he wanted a license and John Gilburn was was prepared to give him a license when he was at Bellevue and the NGRC wouldn't have any of it so in the end I took some advice and I told them that they were in breach of, the, of his human rights because they were preventing him from getting a job um, and that unless they did unless they kind of backed down then I was going to pursue it I didn't have bugger all to go on didn't have any money to spend or whatever but they they went for it and in the end they gave him his license and uh, Pat and I have remained friends ever since and um, I haven't spoken to him for a little while but him and and Pete are, are, are long and dear friends you know I bet you've seen it all in the the ground world over the the decades I bet nothing sort of slipped you by what are the what are the strangest stories that that you've covered again that that that's I know that it's one of those things that I'll go away and think bugger why didn't I think of that um i can remember there's been a few kind of funny stories one that springs to mind was was um some of from the flapping from the flaps I think it was one at chesterfield where um they had a void race because one of the trainers had decided to run a bitch that was in season and she got caught at the third bend by the by some of the dogs and then you can imagine what happened and uh they had to avoid the race Apparently, the, the absolute bedlam broke to, broke out at uh, at the track. That was one story. I mean, I can remember another. Some there were some good flapping stories. There were some great flapping characters. Um, remember one of the tracks they had. Um, they they used to run a lurcher, um, and he was fast enough to run against the grounds, and he won some races. Ah, oh, there was so so many good stories. A lot of a lot of the stories, of course, I wasn't even able to tell. So although people would tell me. I couldn't dare dare write them because you various trainers. I mean, the, the greatest the greatest flapping stories I ever heard um, were from Pat Mullins, and in the early days when when he and Linda um, were flapping in Wales, um, he, he that they they stitched him up at at Ipswich when Ipswich was was NGRC and. Um, 
he had a big fallout because Pat used to prepare dogs for Hackney sales, but not under his name. The dogs would come over early and he'd, and he'd run them run them on the flaps in the flapping days. And then he'd slip them into Hackney sales. And of course, they'd had lots of experience. They were fabulously trained. And yet they used to get top lot for, for, for these dogs. Anyway, Hackney, the people at Hackney eventually found out what he was doing and barred him. And it was Tom Stanley was the guy at Hackney. Um, at Hackney sales then was ended up at Ipswich. So one day they, as as devilment, as much as anything, Pat had a, had a dog entered at Ipswich and um, they backed it from i think five to one um off the board one to two one to three one to four one to five one to ten and they 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 kept coming in they wouldn't take the chalk mark any chalk mark they took it um and then on the monday the same dog this was in a permit trainer's permit trainer's name um two days later the dog appeared for pat running in the derby trials down at white city and again it was just him Kind of having his say, you know, you're not, you're not going to mess with me, kind of thing. But uh, how many of these stories we can use, I don't know. We haven't even been to the dodgy ones yet. <laughs> we, 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 we got, we got the, we got a red light taking Pat Seymour, the Scottish Derby winner, to Wisbeach when it was a flapping track, and he won by 14 lengths, and we got the red light. So, you name it, I don't know which ones you're prepared to cover these stories. <laughs> well, look, they're all stories from a bygone age, so they're all they're all relevant, you know, now and it's good to hear. And hopefully enough times pass now where uh, where we can include them all anyway. Well, it's you know, all these all these these people have gone. Um and they were of their time, you know. It, it, it's it's one of the things that that people don't perhaps don't understand about ground racing is that like society, th things that were acceptable. You know, grounds, lots of grounds used to get put to sleep when I was a kennel lad, but that's kind of, that was the, the the accepted thing in society at the time. It isn't anymore, and they're not. And also grounds are very different from, from um, they're quite a, a much more placid breed now. They're a lot more um, amenable and able to be honed. Um, there are always some that could be honed, but there were an awful lot that you just wouldn't trust with children or other pets, you know. Why is that, Floyd, do you think, over time? It, it's it's absolutely clear to me uh, that it's to do with the breed. Um, I mean, breeding is my my number one favourite subject. But for years and years, of course, our, our dogs were all basically bred to kill because they were, they were from coursing strains. And it didn't always work. And we had to have track lines and, and, and coursing lines. And you, you needed to blend the two of them to get good, fast, honest dogs. The, the, the track breeding kind of brought in the the uh, tenacity and the, the will to chase. Uh, the coursing brought in the speed. And uh, well, particularly Irish park coursing, because the English coursing dogs didn't have a lot of pace, certainly not over, you know, 500 metres. Um, but then as the, the breed changed, as the, first of all, the Americans with Sandman and then the Australians with Frightful Frash and Top Honcho and the rest came in, they be they became a different kind of breed and and um they became a quieter breed a more placid breed but also that they're not trained that they're not out there to kill they're there to chase and the vast majority of greyhounds now are there to chase it makes them a more genuine dog um so there are lots and lots of pluses to it all because we have very few pups now that don't chase in some form you get quite a few dodgy ones but Years ago, you know, they, they might have been put to sleep. 
now when the the the, the antis and the welfareists had to talk about all oh, these these greyhounds that that don't chase there are so few of them certainly in britain i bet there isn't a single greyhound pup born in britain that's ever put to sleep because it because it won't chase or because it's too slow not one and i would challenge anybody to find me a pup in a year a british bred it will happen to a certain extent in ireland but again very very small numbers i'd be astonished because there are places to get them rehomed. So, um, and that's one of the big pluses. The fact we get now get so many pups from a litter that that make the track. There is what we used to be known as wastage. There isn't any, you know. I mean, that's got to be one of the biggest changes over the years, hasn't it? The welfare side of uh, greyhound racing. Um, we're going to change tack now, though, because we're going to talk about favourite greyhounds, because I know that, you know, people have the big stars or they like the personalities or whatever. But who have been your favourite greyhounds over the years, Floyd? Again, I mean, when, when I was a kennel lad, um, I used to like whatever anybody says, if you work in a kennel, you will have your favourites. They're not necessarily the fastest dogs, but if you work with animals, they, they have personalities and some personalities you get on with. And others you don't. And likewise, someone else in the kennel would go, well, actually, I really like that one. You go, I don't like him. He's a miserable bloody dog, you know. Um, I mean, my particular dog, my, I had a particular dog, a dog called City Salesman, and he was kind of my pet. It helped the fact that the owner wasn't really interested. The owner was a big builder um, in London, big property developer. So never came to see the dog. And um, he was kind of my favourite. He was a very quiet dog, little I remember Tommy Foster saying to me years and years later, you'll remember all the details of this dog. And I do. I can remember his breeding. I can remember his racing weight. I can remember everything about him. Um, and I, I led him in a St. Ledger final. And um, he he was in the White City Intertrack team that won the National Intertrack Championship. Um, so on a kind of a personal level, he was a favourite. When my dad was training, we had a very good bitch called Brookview Sarah. Um and she was uh, she broke marathon track record at Crayford for the for like for the ten bends. She was in a match race, um, so she was kind of our kennel star. And then if you're looking beyond that, um, I always loved Nicky Savas dogs, but there was one that he had in particular, a dog called Special Account, who was in the um, he was schooled when I was in the Cambridge Racing Office, and. Um, he went on and ran second in the English Derby, ran second to Loris Panther, having um, had to jump over a dog at the first bend and finished second, beating three quarters of a length. And if you ever get the chance to walk a, watch a video replay of a Derby final, you will never see a more unlucky dog. Well, Derby final or any other race, to be honest, it's absolutely astonishing to, to get within three quarters of a length of winning. So he was a big favourite of mine. And, and what about the most memorable nights actually at the track that you've been to over the years? I think perhaps one of the um, the, the Nicky Sabah derbies were particularly particularly um, special to me because of knowing Nick so well. He'd already won a, his first derby with Tom's the best. That that in itself was a thrill because I could, I was really hoping he would win, and then to win it um, twice in a row, and then of course a third year with Westmead Law the following year. And what it, because of what it meant to him as a, as a breeder who tried, um, you know, for like 30 odd years to breed a derby winner and then in Westmead Hawk to breed to breed the winner twice. That was probably as emotional 
um, and as exciting as, as it's kind of got. Um, I still clearly remember my first derby as a, as a kennel lad at White City because I'd never experienced it before. It was 1977 and um, Balin won the final. And I remember standing at the first bend, looking down the straight. There were a group of us kennel staff went and stood within the first bend, looking directly down the straight as the dogs came out the boxes and came towards us head on. And um, Balinescaban went up there. He was like a dragster. He was a big white dragster with an orange coat on, and he just burned them off. And uh, it was one of the most spectacular kind of sights, particularly to view it from that perspective that I'd seen. So again, that was a particularly memorable race for me. And talking about the past, um, maybe I know the answer to this already, but if you could revive a track that's closed, which one would it be? That isn't easy because one of the things that that people kind of forget, and we all we all do it, is that when tracks close, you kind of remember remember them with very much with rose tinted glasses. So, for example, I loved White City, but it was a big concrete barn. Effectively, it was a, it was a, it was a a stadium built in for the for the for the whatever games back in the early 1900s. Um, and it was fabulous with, I think the biggest crowd I saw there was maybe 28,000. Um, it must have been absolutely magnificent when you when you had sort of 30, 40, well, when you had like 70, 80,000 in there. But it wouldn't survive today. You know, you, you would just look at it and you'd go, what, what a whole hovel it is. You'd have to knock it down and start again. And in the modern world, that's never going to happen because you'd never ever get your money back. Walthamstow was was kind of a sad state um, by the time it finally closed. Though I, I guess as an example of of what a what a stadium could be, um, Walthamstow should never really have gone down the route it did. It was it was mismanaged, and um, they could have continued to pour money in, and basically Walthamstow could have could have kind of lived on. But I think what happened was the Chandler family were at a stage that. A particular generation was ready to move on and they they decided that you know they were pretty much going to cash in and um so i guess walthamstow i miss wimbledon as well but again wimbledon that kind of died in in installments back when we had the original main grandstand it was it was fabulous and standing at the back of the grandstand and looking along and if you stood at the first bend at the end of the grandstand and looked back along the straight and looking at all the thousands of people in there and as I said, bearing in mind, I've been going there since I was about 12. Um, that was was great. But again, it had died bit by bit. And the other place I'd always have a little bit of fondness for, for entirely different reasons, would have been Aldershot, because that was the place where I used to go as a kid and paraded dogs when I was, you know, 13 or 14 and, and, and that kind of stuff. And that was really got me as part of my journey as to why I'm, why I'm where I am now, you know. I went to Wimbledon right at the end. And to me, you know, as someone who was just a very casual fan at the time, um, it was the mystique of the home of the Derby and things like that. And I went a couple of times and it was, uh, as you say, it, it you could tell it had seen better days and they hadn't spent much money on it for some time. No, it, it's it's a shame. Um, you know, there's a kind of whole history thing that, that I'm, I'm interested in the history of, of, of the industry. And um this this industry would have had a very different path, but for things like the Second World War, because at the time the Second World War hit, 
ground racing was the attendances at ground racing were going through the roof. And then, of course, when the Second World War finished, the uh, Labour government taxed it into the ground. Um, they they basically they needed to raise money after the war. We had rationing and whatever. And although lots of people came racing and they had the biggest ever crowds, I think, 1947, 1948, the fact was, from then onwards, they just saw grey. The politicians saw ground racing as a cash cow. Had that not happened, I have no doubt at all that ground racing would have been a far bigger sport today than horse racing, because I think horse racing couldn't have kept up, because greyhound racing had so many advantages over horse racing in being in terms of being a working class sport and and having access. And you know, much as we look at it today. Greyhound racing in those days was so powerful. The GRA was so powerful. They could have bought up all of the bookmakers before bookmaking was legalised. They could have they could have easily bought out um, Cyril Steen, who set up Labrooks and, and Joe Coral and William Hill. They had such massive resources that it could have been a, 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 an entirely different industry that was controlled so the money wasn't leaving the industry. It was actually staying within it. Um, but what actually happened is all the shrewdest, all the really, really clever guys, the guys who built ground racing up from, you know, bearing in mind it wasn't introduced until 1926. But by the time um, that they left, which was in their early 50s, most of them bailed and said, right, we'll take our money, we'll sell our tracks off, we'll, we'll get the, the land values. Had that not happened, had they stayed in the game and brought other clever people into the game, I think we'd have had a very different world now. I think greyhound racing would have been up there with football. Yeah, I find it really interesting as well as a as I said, pretty much you know a, a, fair, a fairly a, you know a bit of a newcomer to, to the sport in relative terms. Like, you know, I was reading Charlie Blanning's book, um, Please Mister, and it goes into detail. Obviously, a lot of it's about the America and the rise of the mechanical hair and stuff. And I recommend the book to anyone who's a, a greyhound fan. It's so interesting fantastically researched book and you know it does go into the days of of some of the stadiums back then you know the crowds that they had um it's just it's incredible and it's it's so far away from what we're used to now but i guess if you don't know any different you, you don't know any different do you no i mean when i when i went to north or it was 19 um 1977 i was still 16 i wasn't quite 17 and there was still there was still a whiff of it there was still a whiff of of of, of the, the kind of the grandeur that was there um and it was a long way down the line i mean i did a, an interview last couple of days with derek knight and derek was at north or in 1966 11 years before i was there and so he'd have even greater grasp on on the glory days and whatever anybody says whatever everybody looks at now greyhound racing was a hugely impressive business i mean north or was on 150 acres it, it they they had something like 500 employees on their uh 15 16 kennels a veterinary hospital gallops paddocks they had staff swimming pool they had um, clubhouse you, you name it it was it was so well done and that was the nature of the gra in those days you know very different beast to what it is today that is for sure uh greyhound racing and when it comes to coverage of greyhound racing, what do you think of it as it stands at the moment, Floyd? I don't know what else we can really expect. I mean, if, if we look if we look at greyhound coverage in general, um, you know, everybody's had a moan about RPG TV, but they've got a limited budget. You know, they, they kind of do the best they can. 
I think, and is all, with all of these things, um, there's always going to be a situation whereby people will say, um, I don't know, maybe get into a little bit of a habit, get into a little bit of a groove. I, I, I'm quite, I get quite irritated when, for example, on Derby final night, we end up with some very moderate graded racing from Crayford um, being spaced in between the, the, the big Derby cards. Now, I understand that the bookmakers are paying for it and the bookmakers should get what they want. I just don't think it's very well thought out because to me, if you can't have greater turnover by producing better coverage of major races with top British and Irish stars in, instead of a graded an, an, eight, an A8 or an A9 at Crayford, you're doing something badly wrong. I, I one of my my if I could change one thing about greyhound racing, one thing, I would say we have to go back fundamentally and look at what we produce for the betting industry, because greyhound betting is broken. It's badly broken. It's partly down to uh, the exchanges, um, because they kind of. Uh, they have such a parasitic influence on everything. It's very difficult for the bookmakers, I understand, to get their percentages when the exchanges can work to such a low figure. But ultimately, if we're going to have an industry, somebody has to pay for it and it has to be the betting. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how we deal with that. I don't know how we manage to get enough revenue in to have a, a thriving business but it certainly isn't under the, the circumstances that we are at the moment. It's almost like we're clinging on by, by our fingernails and we're clinging on primarily because we're very cheap product, not because we're particularly good product. And uh, it's it's churn it out, churn it out, churn it out. Life product, um, is this the best we can do? If it is, fair enough, you know, let people earn a living for, for as long as as long as an industry we keep going. But I would hope that be a little bit more imagination in 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 the type of bets, how we bet. Um, I, I I don't think there's been any kind of innovation at all in betting for a long time. In fact, it's actually gone backwards in terms of industry odds, because that isn't industry odds are not the solution. That there might be a solution for the betting industry, but they're not a solution for ground racing. Yeah, there's some, I've been thinking about this a lot because Lord Lipsy came out with something the other day um, about PGR and affordability checks, which has obviously been talked a lot about in horse racing, but it's relevant to greyhound racing too. And I think one of the problems is how quickly bookmakers restrict accounts. Forget affordability checks. I mean, I've seen it myself and my friends who have had accounts limited after a couple of ground bets. Um, the bookies don't seem to want to know with ground racing. You know, if you if you win a couple of bets, they'll instantly get rid of you. But that 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 makes your enthusiasm for the product wane straight away. And if you can't get a bet on, it's 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 difficult to, to get excited about it. But I think the problem is at the moment, in my opinion, there's no plan for, for Graham racing for one year, three years, five years. As you said, Floyd, we're just sort of meandering along um, into the abyss. You know, we need some sort of commercial marketing plan to work towards cost it out. How much does it cost? And then, as you say, go to the bookmakers and say, you know, the voluntary levy needs to go up. But this is what we're going to do if you pay us. At the moment, there's no, you know, we're just asking the bookmakers to pay more and that's it. Why would they say yes? You know, if there's a plan and something they could buy into, maybe they would. I don't know. I, I, I agree. And, and I think it's it's one of the problems that we sometimes get into, the Greyhound people sometimes get into. And it's all very well having a knock at, 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 at the bookies. 
But at the end of the day, they are businesses and they keep they keep us going. So we should be going to them and saying, what is it that you want? How do we present this in a better way? How do we increase revenue? Because I, I'm absolutely clear beyond doubt, we have a fabulous betting product. It, it, it is, it's beyond compare in terms of um, the availability, the, 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 the comparative um, cost to, to operate, um, but we're not doing it well. And Nobody seems to have a plan. Nobody seems to, to, to be able to go, do you know what? If we were to do it this way, the closest we get is Australia. And it's interesting. I talk to people about Australian racing. Now, we have very different industries. We can't compare ourselves on all kinds of levels to Australia. You know, they are a state-run industry. They are effectively the bookmakers. They get their rake off. That's how it works. The only way that you change that is get a time machine and go back to 1926 and start again. That 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 is... That won't change. But what can change is we can take some of their ideas, the way that they present their product, which is fabulous, and use some of those ideas. I mean, someone was explained to me a little uh, recently that it, the young people in Australia are among Greyhound Racing's biggest fans, much more Greyhounds than horses. And that's the, the increase in, in product. I don't know any young people apart from people directly involved in kennels i don't know any young people actually would ever go greyhound racing um it's not going to be that simple and i think we also have to you know work out that society has changed and you're never going to be getting massive crowds going to dog tracks because they don't go to anything you know we even pubs and clubs and speedway and everything else but we we have to adapt our product accordingly and at the moment we don't have a plan no, because I know PGR do have little bits in the pipeline, obviously, with the coverage. Hopefully, the buzzword is, isn't it, behind the red button at the moment. That's what we think is going to happen next year. I'm kind of hoping that we get a bit of a kick from what PGR are going to do next year, especially if they do, you know, ramp up the coverage a little bit, make it a little bit more exciting. Because at the moment, obviously, we've got Racing Post TV and we have Sky Sports. To be fair, at the beginning, when, when I started working for Sky Sports, we were a shoehorned product. Now it seems like they are um, actually working in the greyhound racing and making sure that we are um, covering, you know, the main races at least, if not every race from each track that they cover it throughout the week. So it seems like we are just managing to um, increase the coverage on Sky Sports Racing. Obviously, Racing Post TV, we cover every race that we can um, on from SIS or whatever. But I'm just hoping that PGR have a plan you know, whereby we can get access to Greyhound Racing, we can start putting it out there to the masses a little bit more, start, you know, trying to hook the young people in because that, like you say, that is what we need. And that is, you know, where we need to to be trying to uh, focus our attention because they're all, you know, I, I talked to my little sister and she's only 13 and she's like, well, if, if I have to go, I don't really want to go. I'd rather just watch it at home or I'd rather have access to it on the computer or iPod, laptop, TV, whatever. So it is trying to gain a new audience, but not necessarily by them going to the track, I think. I, I, I agree entirely, Danny. I, I think um, I would be hopeful. I mean, PGR, um, again, we all only know so much. And again, sometimes things that we do know, we can't always talk about. Um, but... I think PGR, they've got, they've got, um, I've had a few meetings with, with Gary Nash and, um, very, very clever operator. 
I think that they have, will have some some very good ideas to come forward. Quite what they are and how much um, input, how brave they're going to be, I'd be interested to see. But I think it's going to it's going to take something. We can't tweak what we've got because what we've got is so far not good enough that there's going to have to be some. I hate the terminology, but out of the box thinking. It, it's going to have to be that kind of thought, you know, thought process. How do we engage a new audience? Um, as I said, let's look at Australia because we get such a lot from Australia in terms of veterinary and everything else. They do the research and we piggyback off it. Let's look at Australia. Let's let's look at some of their best ideas. Let's see which of them we can adapt. Some of them we won't be able to adapt because, again, their setup's entirely different to ours. But there is some good stuff out there. Um, and I agree. I think we looking at the, the, the concept of, of um, people going racing, it doesn't happen. I mean... I talk to owners, um, happy to own a greyhound, but got no real ambition apart from occasionally to go racing because particularly, you know, if it's a Friday night, get back, don't get back home till six o'clock, going to get changed, get something to eat or whatever, even if they eat at the track. By the time they get out to the track, busy traffic or whatever, again, I'll sod it. Let's sit in front of the telly, the dog's on the TV, get some beers in, have a get a take a carry out in and whatever watch the race in here and there's an awful lot of owners um that are quite prepared to do that how we embrace that in the system i don't know you know because you can't have every track racing uh or, or, or eight tracks racing on on a night and everybody expect to be on tv so like you know a little bit of lateral thinking really needed i think Indeed, indeed. And it is a big puzzle to solve. But hopefully, as you say, there will be some out-of-the-box thinking. And looking forward to hearing what PGR have in store. Home Run Hounds is a new charity set-up homing centre. We aim to find loving homes for retired racing grounds. I've been in greyhound racing for 30 years now as a kennel hands and an owner. Six years in the homing industry through Greyhound Trust through their Dudley branch. Obviously, totally in love with the breed and firmly believe that once their racing career is over, they deserve a happy ever after in front of a warm fire on a nice comfy sofa and boy do they ever know their home. Um, we retire between two and four years of age. This means that two-thirds of the Greyhound's life is spent on the sofa, so it's essential that we find the absolute best home for them. And we home with families of children, occasionally with cats and other pets, and we do home checks, um, repetitive introductions where people come into kennels with their pet, and usually it's a case of the Greyhound chooses the family. <laughs> Obviously, we like the family to choose the Greyhound as well. But our primary objective is to ensure that everyone within the family unit is happy. So you can contact us. The telephone number is 07488 253537. Our website is www.homerunhounds.co.uk and we have our Facebook Home Run Hounds and our Twitter account at Home Run Hounds. Um, changing tack slightly, 
Um, have you ever owned? Have you been an owner yourself, Floyd? Have you got to the track or sat in front of the TV and watched your dogs running? It's been years since I've owned dogs. I think the last dogs I owned were with uh, the late great Matt O'Donnell. I had, um, I think that was the last one. Um, I had a, I bred some, I bred a couple of litters, and um, I had a, a, a swap. We swapped a couple of pups with a lady called Alice Swaffield. Um, long since departed bless a lovely lady and um alice bred um batty's whisper and batty's rocket that finished first and second in the irish derby and um she was an irish lady but she was a, she ran an old people's home in in york and um i got to know her and one day we we, we both had litters i had a top honcho litter and she had a i can't remember who her litter was by now and we, we've kind of swapped i think a pup each and my, ended, my dog ended up with Matt and he ended up quite a nice little dog. He was a, he was a decent little minor open racer. Um, but beyond that, no, it's been a long time since I've actually owned anything, to be honest. Any reason? Um, really, it's apart from anything else. I mean, I, I work seven days a week and um, generally when I kind of walk out this office, I may occasionally go racing, but I don't get racing as often as, as I would like. I mean, Henlow's only f- between 15 and 20 minutes from me, but quite often when, when I, I just want to go and crash out and watch a game of football or, or, or a game of cricket or something like that, um, the prospect of the thought of, of, you know, getting in a car and driving for an hour to go and see a dog run um, isn't really top of my priority list, if I'm honest. I guess it's when, you know, it's one of those things that you live and breathe greyhound racing because we all do in the industry. Yeah. But you have to have that downtime most of the time away from it, really. So, you yeah. know, with your football or I go to the gym or I go and walk my dog that isn't a greyhound. Uh, she's a little pest and driving me up the wall while trying to uh, record this uh, interview. She wants to go out at the moment, but she's not going yet. Um, but, you know, you, you do have to decompress and you can't just watch every single race of every single meeting, every single day. I know some people want to and love it and you know hats off to you if you can but I know that you know you just have to decompress in in a different way Floyd well you, you get it with footballers don't you and the, the footballers on the day off want to go and play golf it's it's that kind of thing and it keeps you fresh um as I said there, there hasn't been a day in the last what 51 years that I haven't thought about greyhounds at some stage during the day um and when I was working um, on, on the kind of the, some of the tougher days of the star, I could and I could do 14 hour days. Um, and it was, you know, particularly then I did get the odd day off because as a monthly newspaper, we'd go to press and I'd kind of go and sleep for a couple of days. But um, these days it's because of the website. People want fresh stuff up every day. So I'm, I'm working every day. And uh, there does come a time that you go, oh, I just want to, I don't want to see a greyhound. And uh, then I have one sitting in the office next to me that keeps farting the place out. So I can't really get away from it. I think that was going to be our next one. Do you have any retired hounds at home? <laughs> I, I have I have Rushy here who was, um, she, and her racing name was uh, Ribble Rush. Mark Wallace trained her and um, she was owned by Lord Hesketh. In fact, she was Lord Hesketh's first ever open race winner. And uh, she was bred by Ian Greaves and she was a, a sister. I don't remember Ribble Atom and Ribble Aeon. She was from that litter. So she was 10 last month. And uh, we've got uh, another pet as well. Uh, 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 they're, apparently they're called designer dogs. But as far as I'm concerned, it's a mongrel. 
It's a, a golden doodle, um, an expensive mongrel. Um, but the two of them, they go out every day and take them out every day. And um, they're, they're, they're great sport together. Golden doodle, whatever next. Um... Don't tell anybody. <laughs> this will be just our secret. Uh, um, we ask this question quite a lot and the answer is often the same. So I'm interested to know what's been the biggest change in greyhound racing that you've seen since you started out. Welfare. Welfare. No, 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 no doubt about it. Welfare. Um, I've, I've said this before, so I don't want to repeat myself. Anybody sitting to go, yeah, we've heard this. But as I said, we're, lots of greyhounds when they when they finish racing. Um, when I was a kid, so a decent percentage were put to sleep, and they weren't always put to sleep for for kind of you know callous reasons. Quite often, if if people anybody who was around back in the seventies and the eighties will remember there was a big concern what would happen to dogs when they finished racing um, if you move them on. And we there were many stories at the time about them going for vivisection. Um, there were quite a few ended up being kind of bought through dodgy agents who then ended up taking the dogs off to Spain. Some of them ended up on the flaps. Um, and of course, in those days, you know, they, they although they had earmarks, they, they weren't microchipped. So they were very difficult to, to, to trace. And also some others ended up with travellers and they'd basically course the guts out of them and then and then abandon them. So the add, put that together, put the fact that they had a slightly different, um, a more aggressive temperament, a lot of owners um, would have their dogs put to sleep. And in some cases, you know, they would even have dogs that they could have sold. They would have them put to sleep because their, 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 their idea was, at least I know that this dog isn't going to suffer. And as I said, that was society. I mean, I, I've used this, this expression a, a few times, but we society had a different view on animals. You know, if you go back to your grandparents' time, their view on animals, you know, unwanted lit, uh, litters of kittens were disposed of. It, it was that simple. Um, people couldn't afford to keep stray dogs and and... Um, there was there was much less compassion for animals than, than than there is today. Today we, you know, we're a completely different world. And and anybody that I find it very interesting that whenever we hear the antis or we hear like the, there was a an idiot Scottish politician speaking to the Welsh Parliament not so long ago, and he was telling us about what life was like in Scotland back in the back fifty years ago and how he remembered greyhounds were treated. Not vaguely interested, mate not vaguely interested it was a different world it isn't like that these days we can hold our hands up i still find it quite astonishing if when having a retired greyhound anybody that comes here that kind of doesn't know us or that doesn't know and they go oh is it is it true what happened to them when at the end of their careers you go no it isn't tell you what i'll give you a challenge guess to within 10 percent how many or what percentage are rehomed and, you know, oh, 20%, 30%. No, no, 94% or over 94% are rehomed. And included in the lot that aren't rehomed are those that are that die of natural causes and, and various other factors. And nobody can ever believe it. They are, I've never yet given that, quoted that stat to anybody who hasn't been less than astonished by it. Um, we're not doing a very good job of selling it though, are we? Because the fact that nobody knows that and everybody assumes that most of them are put to sleep. 
Well, and also the people that that make money by being against ground racing shout quite loudly about that fact also. It's true. And it's also, unfortunately, um, you know, the definition of of kind of journalism is that bad news always travels fastest. And uh, you've only got to listen to the BBC News. There's going to be nine bad bad news stories for every one good news story. And uh, that is something we're going to have to face, always going to have to face. And if people have got one eye on the idea that greyhounds are are, are manipulated and and, uh, abused, then it kind of just confirms their bias when when they hear a a bad news story about dogs. But we all know it's not true. The other point I was going to make, you said one thing, and I I really, there were two, because I've talked about the welfare, but the other thing that is just as valid and again, I don't know whether you want to use it or use it another time or, or whatever. And that's, of course, the, the whole honesty of the honesty of the industry, because that is just that is just as valid. I mean, I, I grew up in flapping circles where dogs were stopped and started. Drugs were around. Um, strokes were pulled left, right and centre. And, and we are not that industry anymore. So. I don't know. Maybe we do that another time. You know, we probably you've probably got enough that you want to talk about for today anyway. But I think it's certainly a valid, it's definitely a valid discussion point because this is nowhere near the industry that I came into. I mean, I was I did an interview with um, Radio Essex, BBC Radio Essex, a, a week or so, or a couple of weeks ago, and I just kind of had enough of it, and I kind of lost my rag a little bit, and it was really quite unprofessional. But it gets to a point in life, and you go, do you know what? I'm fed up of of going down the the polite route and and the and you know so the ground board can't say it. they they have to assume a, a political role they have to say certain things I didn't and I wasn't prepared to and I won't be prepared to and if ever anybody is brave enough to interview me about it again I will spout precisely the same kind of rhetoric you know good. I'm very glad about that, Floyd, to be fair. <laughs> we do need uh, a few more outspoken people, I think, that um, aren't afraid to to give opinions um, about, you know, the state of greyhound racing and, and what we can do and, and trying to just, you know, bat down the antis because I come out and bat every now and again, but with certain positions, I, you know, I mean, I can't really, you know, go to town and say exactly what I would like to say as much as I really, really want to sometimes. I, I do sometimes write out some tweets and think, no, can't say that. Can't say it. I think it. A lot of people do, but I just can't say it. So, um, yeah, hats off to you. Um, and also, I was just going to ask, harking back to the Greyhound star, is it a bit of a thankless task that you have to do, you know, every day and people want, um, you know, new content every single day? Um, some days it's, it's, um, I think Anne Lennox, the, the grand magazine used to, it, some, some day is a pen sucking day. Um, and, and other days it kind of falls into place. There are still times that I sit down and there's a really good story. Um, and I get the opportunity to talk to interesting people. I mean, I have been so fortunate. I have had the best job. Um, it's, I kind of got to meet all my heroes. I mean, if there's anything comes out of this kind of podcast to, like, to say, what is your, what would your um, message be? And I've been the luckiest guy in the world because I grew up with these people as, as my heroes with, with the, the George Curtises and, and the Charlie Listers and the Nick Savers and, and Joe McKenna's and whatever. Paddy Sweeney as the vets, um, 
Jim Gannon, the vet, uh, Pat Dalton, you name them. I, and, and I'm sitting there and I, I promise it sounds like name dropping. I don't mean it to be. I'm really trying to emphasize the point that I've got to a stage that I had known and some of them are no longer with us, but I have known all these people on first name terms. And that has been such a privilege. And I am not a particularly interesting person, but I have got to meet so many interesting people and got to interview them. Just before you go, Floyd, uh, we've got a couple um, I was sent. First one, Stephen Lee Wells sent a question in. Um, he said, why are you so convinced we'll lose more tracks? Um, I can't really go into it, but I think that there are a couple that are kind of earmarked to possibly close. And I can't, and I'm not being a deliberate tease here because I don't absolutely know. And under no circumstances would I want to put any kind of sword of Damocles over any track because it just wouldn't be fair because I don't have the evidence. Um, I'm not sure that 22 tracks is sustainable. In fact, I'm pretty sure it isn't. Um, but what actually closes, I don't think has been absolutely determined because both um, ARC or, or, or PGR and SIS have some flexibility in terms of what they're going to be doing. And I don't think at this stage they even know. They won't know till a few months into next year exactly what the bookmakers want because the bookmakers are quite fickle in terms of what they want as product. And they can just as easily go, no, we're, you know, we're not having those meetings. We're not bothered with those meetings. In which case, there's every chance that the tracks would go. We saw it when... Um, at the end of COVID, when Bellevue and Peterborough and Paul all just went because they had a lack of meetings. They didn't have enough meetings to go around. And so that could easily happen. But I can't I can't just name names. Thanks for that. And then and then the final one is two questions from Paul, who's uh, Greyhound Racing Weekly on, on Twitter. He asks, what advice do you have for aspiring sports journalists who want to write about Greyhound Racing first up? Um, well, my brand of journalism is is on its last legs. Um, you know, I'm I'm not really sure I'm qualified to to understand how the product is delivered, how how the um, how you would actually produce your ideas as a journalist. I'm totally convinced that journalism will always have a major part to play because one of the things that I've noticed. When I first started on Greyhound Star, the people would, would hunt down a Greyhound story. I, as a kid, I would hunt down a Greyhound story. We'd get the Sporting Life or the Ground Owner or the Grand Magazine or whatever. Now people have become very, very idle because they're bombarded with information. Unfortunately, um, there's too much. There's information overload. There's a lot of it is is rubbish. There's a lot of, of an awful lot of... There's so many experts out there. There are so many people with an opinion. And a friend of a friend works for the BBC and um, they were asked about the, f the future of, of BBC journalism. And they said the, the, the clue to journalism in the future will be integrity. And it will be someone in amongst the great mass of information that will be identifying someone who you can go to and they'll go, this person, he or she, they can identify the truth, they can analyse and they will deliver a very, very good, very, very good view on things. We've already got that. So, I mean, I've got certain journalists already or certain news channels 
Um, Andrew Neal's a massive. I'm a massive fan of Andrew Neal, the the um, Spectator guy and, and ex Sunday Times and whatever. I think he's a fabulous journalist. If he says it, I tend to to switch on. If other journalists say things, I tend to go, yeah, whatever, mate. You know, I probably know more about it than you do. Um, so I would say to, in a long-winded way, which is the normal way normal way I do things, be be astute know your subject and you'll always find an outlet for it if you're good at what you do and you really really know your subject and there's no shortcut for that that's just bloody hard work i mean i still one of the things we do on the star website we do performance of the week and irish performance of the week and i do those personally and for as much reason as anything else it means i have to stay switched on of what's going on in england and ireland so i cover every track i've got a pretty good idea on the racing strength in terms of the top dogs at every track in the country. And that takes time. That takes time and effort. And um, as I said, I don't know how, how you're as a young journalist, you will deliver your product, but just make sure you're very good at what you do. Wise words, wise words. And then he asks further question. Does Paul, what's the most rewarding piece that you've written for the star and which piece are you most proud of? Um, I've got two, I've got two or three or four over, over time, um, that I'm, I'm very proud of. A couple of them have been reproduced because when you've been doing it as long as I have, to be honest, um, you know, I'm frequently aware that I've got a different audience. I mean, I've got people reading stuff now that weren't even born when I started writing. Um, I wrote a piece, one of the, the, the best interviews I, I did, I suppose I'll do it another way around. I did I did a couple of very good articles with Paddy Sweeney, um, a man who I thought the absolute world of. And, and um, long after he retired, Paddy had phoned up about once a fortnight just for a chat, put the world to be, put the world to rights. So I did a couple of articles with him, one of which was talking about his early days when he first came to England. Um, about I remember one story where he told um about having, I think it was 1948, taking a, a young dog greyhound that he had down to the research kennels while they were um, doing the research on di a distemper vaccine. And he, he Pat, to this to that day, Paddy virtually broke down in tears. Um, the guilt that he felt having to take this poor dog um, for some quite intrusive tests and to give blood. Um, as part of these these tests, and so 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 that was kind of kind of memorable. Um, I remember particularly enjoying an article I wrote with Len Franklin, who is Simon Franklin's um, the Yarmouth promoter. It's his grandfather. Um, and again, I've reproduced that. It was in a book we did, the Fact File book. But that was about him as a professional gambler between the wars. And literally going going racing, I think that the story was like with a thousand pounds in his pocket, and when you could have bought a semi-detached house for four hundred, and the way he operated, and always attending every trial session, and of course those were the days when the doping gangs were operating, and they were able, they were such good judges, and they got one look at a race, of course, that there, there were no videos in those days. But they were so astute, these guys, the professional gamblers, that they worked out when the when the doping gangs were operating before the tracks even knew themselves. And they'd go, something not right about this particular track, this particular kennel. Um, 
we'll leave them alone for a couple of weeks until the, the authorities catch them. And sure enough, within a couple of weeks, somebody get caught, then the form would all revert back again. So that I found fascinating from a historical point of view. Um, I'm just trying to think if there was one more. Um, I did a couple of articles as well on Joe Booth, the great flapping man. Um, and in fact, one of the problems is I reproduced one of them a few years later. And, and uh, I remember John Ford's going, oh, not bloody Joe Booth again. And uh, it, it put me off um, ever kind of reproducing it. I was feeling a bit sensitive about it. I thought, well, that would be it. But again, some of the funny stories from Joe um, going to a, the flapping track and trying to sneak in a ringer. And the, 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 the guy who was in control of the paddock they knew it was a pigeon fancier. So someone sneaked around and they managed to put a racing pigeon on the roof of the kennel so they could distract this guy. And while his back was turned, they replaced the dogs in the kennel. Um, oh, all that kind of, there, there were a load of those kinds of stories. I love those old fashioned flapping stories. So um, that was another good one I, I, I enjoyed doing. That is a good one. I like that. that Dedication to the course where there's money involved. <laughs> They will find a way. They absolutely oh, the, will. The, 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 the invention, I mean, some of the, as I said, I love the flapping stories where where people would turn up. Um, and again, people like Pat Rosney will talk about this because this is back in their flapping days where they would turn up and they, they would manage to, um, they'd win a race. And then the following week, they'd turn up with the same run and knowing it would be odds on. So they'd have someone else bring it in. Um, from a different kind of course and you know there's nothing dishonest about this because these are flapping days everybody the dogs just turned up you got the name changed that that was what people did so the fact i said the, the second week they'd turn up but they'd have someone else bring the fast bitch in and the guy that had brought the original one in would be bringing in the slow one so the punters would all be on the wrong one then the following week they'd come back again with the same two guys and the same two or two black bitches and the punters had to guess which one was the original one and which was the slow one, all that kind of stuff, you know, and um, talk to Charlie Lister about having to hide around the other side of the track when he used to turn up with dogs on the flaps so that nobody could see him because if they spotted Charlie there, they, and he was a, Charlie was an absolute legend on, on the flaps. If they spotted Charlie, then all the, the clever boys were around there trying to work out which one was his. And, um, so again, having to like peer through fences and things to watch his dogs run. Happy oh, days. Is, they sound <laughs> absolutely brilliant to be fair. Cause I, like Joe and I are both saying relatively new. I'm I'm old. I feel like I'm an old hand now after 12 years, but I know Joe's, Joe's a little bit uh, younger than me when it comes to greyhound racing. Um, and it's great to hear all of the old stories because we just don't see anything like that anymore. It's just, you know, it's oh, the listen, products we you know. know. People, again, have to understand that there were different rules of the game. And mm. when people went flapping, it was kind of cheating. But it, everybody knew the rules. The bookies knew the rules. The other trainers knew the rules. And it was a case of trying to be trying to be clever. I remember one funny story when I was at Aldershot. I used to work for a guy called, um, when I said when I was a teenager, 14, used to work for a guy called Phil Potter, a fabulous old dog man. And I remember the one day... Um, he had a he had a favourite for a grade. He raced at Aldershot, and he decided that um, that she, he wanted to get beat because he knew she'd be favourite. So he fed her, and then gave her to his his the kennel lad um, to walk then to to Aldershot, and it was something like a six or seven mile walk because he he wanted to make sure that she, that she couldn't win. 
anyway, what happened was the um, much to everybody's surprise, she came out and won. And this particular kennel lad had, had had his money on. Of course, everybody else then knew that this bitch wasn't going to win. So he'd backed her something like six or seven to one. And it only transpired later that that she'd been vomited on the way to the track and he'd, and he'd taken them on the bus. And he, <laughs> instead of walking the seven miles, he'd taken them on the bus. And, it, and ah, <laughs> quite how many of these stories you want to run with Danny, I really don't know. But as I said, it was a different era. Oh, I think they're all staying. They're, they're absolutely <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> I think that is a good time to end the interview as well because I could talk to you for hours, Floyd, and um, quite frankly, I just don't have enough editing time <laughs> to do oh, that. Okay, so we I might have to have a, a Floyd Amphlet part two, if that's all right, at some point. By all means, and and I'll, I'll perhaps I'll, I'll I'll have a little bit more thought and, and be a little bit more original in some of my thinking because some of these things I know that there are stories out there. I only have to flick through some old Greyhound stars and you know you go, oh God, I remember that interview. Um, you know, I remember one of the interviews. Again, this may not be for the thinkers. You may not want to use it, but kind of like the highlights. When I grew up, Joe McKenna was was the big. Joe McKenna was the ultimate hero as as the top Irish trainer. He won. I don't know, he went seven or eight Irish derbies and about 12 Irish St. Ledgers and whatever. And and um and I got to literally when you know when I said when even when I was like 12 or 13, I'd get the sport in life and watch Jer got in the derby because he would always bring over the derby favourite virtually every year. Mm. And uh never got to meet him, and he had this reputation of being a real grumpy grumpy kind of miserable fuck and I thought oh, I'm not even really sure you know so the one day he was he was coming over for the derby and he was staying at the kennel in Enfield uh, with a, with Kim Marlowe the, the romper trainer at the time so I said um this I was asked uh, would you set up an interview with Joe McKenna and I thought oh fuck you know I'm not I'm really not sure about this so I went along and kind of almost like nervously babbling, you know, Mr. McKenna, you know, I'm, I'm Floyd from Grand Star. And, um, and, and he was quite quiet. And he, and he said, um, I said, you know, you hope you're not too busy. No, no, I've got the couple. Cause he only had like two dogs over for the Derby. You know, I said, the, the dogs are done. He said, let's go and have a chat. And what a lovely bloke he was. And he was so kind of shy. And I said, when I was at Northall, I said, we used to see you. And we were all too frightened to kind of come and talk to you because you're like, you're our hero. And I said, and we were all kind of too frightened. And he said, so sad. He said, I used to come over and think how unfriendly everybody was. He said, he said, and he said, I would have loved to have come and had a chat with some of you lads. He said, I don't have to come in the clubhouse and had a chat with you. And I was gutted. I was absolutely gutted. And then the kind of the, the postscript to the story, because, you know, the, Jerry's Owen's dad, you know, Owen mm. McKenna. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the postscript to the story was I was at Shelbourne Park. I don't know, maybe 10 years later, seven, eight years later. And I'm walking across the park, the car park at Shelbourne Park. And I heard someone shout, fly, fly. And I looked round and it was Jer in his van and he was calling me over. And that's when I knew I'd made it. Mm. Joe McKenna, who knew who I was. And I remember, walk, I just welled up. I thought, he knows me. 
he knows me. Joe McKenna knows who I am. He'd remembered. And he was lovely. And he was chatting, chatting away for about 20 minutes and half an hour, just on, on bits and pieces, you know. The moral of that story is never assume. No. I think that's one of the beauties of ground racing as well. And we'll promote going to the track. We mentioned about sitting at home and watching it with a few cans. But if you go to the track, everyone yeah. is accessible. Punters will chat to you. Trainers, most trainers will chat to you. Owners will be there cheering their dogs and they'll happily, you know, let you have a photo with the dog or chat about the chances and things like that. Yeah. You know, it's the most friendly and sociable environment you can you can go to. Well, one of the things that I used to love was going to Clonmel to the coursing. Um, and I'm not really a, a hair coursing kind of guy. And um, but we go to Powerstown and I went year after year after year. And I used to go down there with um, a guy called Freddie Worrell, who was one of the top owners ever in, in, in dogs. He owned Monley Champion. He owned lots and lots of top dogs, learned lots of top coursing dogs as well. And then in the bar in the evening in the Manila, you'd have mostly British people, uh, you know, Paul Young and all his entourage and Gaskin and all loads and loads and loads of people. And sometimes we'd get back from the coursing at, say, three o'clock in the afternoon and you say, right, I'm going to have one quick beer, then I'm going to get changed and then we'll be down for dinner later and then we'll, you know, go out perhaps out into Clonmel. And then at three o'clock the next morning, you'd still be sitting there and that atmosphere amongst the Greyhound people, when they when they get together and they start telling stories, that is perhaps my favourite part of the industry. Um, and one of the days I think what we'll have to try to do is organise something I don't know, maybe it's somewhere like Toaster, where you have a kind of um, get a couple of three people along and do it very much in that environment where perhaps put some, you know, some some entertainment, maybe like an afternoon before the derby or, or the Friday before the derby. And you get a, get a couple of hundred Greyhound people just along, just to chat without a ground meeting going on. Um, and if you did it with people, yeah, and maybe something like a Rab McNair and, 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 and a two or three other characters, um, I think that the, the buzz would be great. I mean, I'd hoped when Kevin Kevin wanted to get his um, his his tents and things done that he's never been able to do, but to make toast a kind of a whole weekend festival, mm. so you could stay overnight in these yurts or or the or caravans or whatever it was going to be. Um, and thus far, it hasn't happened because I don't think the council have been that helpful. But the idea of kind of turning up on maybe say a Friday lunchtime. And having something like that on the Friday afternoon, then maybe racing on the Friday evening and then maybe a sail on Saturday morning and turning the whole weekend into a festival, I think would be absolutely fabulous. And it yeah. gives you a chance that we don't normally get to sit around and chat to other dog people because generally you're doing it at a race meeting. And by the time you've got the announcements or they've got runners or you want to see a race and, and bits and pieces, you don't really get to sit down and and have those kind of discussions they're very sh short you know and you don't really get a chance to to meet people some of the best friendships i have in dogs were forged in ireland um with people that i met and spent three or four hours with you know and, and you really can get to know them i mean if we do another one of these we'll talk one of those meetings was i, I met the guy um i didn't really know him before i only knew him briefly before and a guy called john guilford who owned at the time he owned a dog called a stud dog, Ireland's top stud dog at the time, a dog called Green Park Fox. And um, he, we went to, met him at Clonmel. He said, would you come out for a meal with us? Which we did. 
And he said, while we're out, he said, um, I want to get a backup stud dog. He said, because of, of Green Park Fox, he's booked out solid. He said, and, and I think if we had a, a secondary dog here, if the one dog's too busy uh, or the bitches aren't ready on the right day, we can we can use the other dog. Can you find me one? I said, well, I've got one in mind. So I did the deal, arranged it, and we bought the, I bought the dog for him. Um, no sooner had the dog arrived, I think within about three months, Green Park Fox had died of cancer. The dog that I bought over for him, the dog that I managed to buy, was a dog, again, I know I'm conscious of my age here and time differences between us, but there was a dog called Slaney Side Hair. Um, and he, because he became the, the champion sire and he and he was the sire of some picture who I'm sure you've, you've come across. Um, so again, that was just another little little story. Um, I, I was also the one that bought Frightful Flash, the, the first of the big Australian sires, the sire of Tom's the Best. I bought mm. him for Michael Dunn in Ireland um, with a friend of mine who was in Australia at the time, who then bought Top Honcho as the follow-up to Frightful Flash. So there's there's a load of stories and I'll wrap it all day and, you know, you're going to get bored shitless with me, but Not that's what happens if you've been in the industry for like 51 years, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, and now the shoe's on the other foot. You're the uh, interviewee rather than the interviewer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just keep rabbiting and rabbiting. Uh, right, Floyd, I think that's... Is that everything, Joe? I think. That's yeah, everything. yeah, that that's it. Yeah, really <laughs> enjoyed, really enjoyed the chat, Floyd, and hearing your stories, learning more about the past as well as the future, and uh, yeah, hopefully we could do it again. Well, if you can condense that into something that's usable, and then you do, as I said, you get some ideas. Then, as I said, I, it, it, it honestly, it isn't about me. It's, it's. I've been lucky to meet all these people over time, and as I said, all the top vets and the top trainers, top owners. And it's their stories that are interesting, not mine. I'm I'm just a bloke who scribbles. You know, I'm I'm I, I'm I'm the, the kennel lad who could scribble a bit. But these people are fascinating. They are really, really really interesting. So yeah, we'll definitely have to do a part two. Yeah, hundred percent. No problem. Well, great to hear from Floyd Amphlett, and I'm sure we'll be having a Floyd part two at some time in the Gone to the Dogs podcast future. But now we are on to the betting segment of the show. We've got three massive finals this weekend. The first of them is tonight. It is Friday at Oxford. Of course, we always have some good racing and the RPG TV Cowley Puppy Collar Final is the highlight. Trap one is Cat Island, two Longfellow, three Golden Palace, four King Memphis, five Droopy's Hanover, and six Queen Dusty. Joe, this is going to be an absolute cracker. I love puppy races. Cracking race, yeah. I love puppy finals because it's not just about the here and now. It's about what they're going to do afterwards. And we've got a load of promising puppies here. From a betting point of view, I mean, King Memphis is favourite. He's, he's five to four, as we record. He's drifting out slightly. He's odds on in places. And he's a worthy favourite, let's face it. He's, he's been very impressive um, in his career so far, full stop. You know, not just Oxford at, at Swindon too. Um, but I just feel, I think Golden Palace is an absolutely mad price here at 12 to one. I've already backed him each way um, when I was looking at the race last night. 
because um, I just can't see him going off any anywhere near that. I mean, he'll probably go off now. I'm massive price on the exchange. <laughs> but I just, it's just crazy. I mean, he um, he he beat Cat Island by a short head in the first round, but he met a lot of trouble there um, and did well to. To, to get up, I have to say. And then he was beaten three lengths by King Memphis, but that doesn't quite tell the whole story because King Memphis was in, in trap uh, one then and he's in trap four here on the outside of Golden Palace. Um, I don't think trap three is ideal for Golden Palace, but I do think he's the right side of King Memphis. And if you watch the race back, you know, he's he, King Memphis gets daylight and he's not pulling away. If anything, Golden Palace might be coming back to him a little bit at the end. So... I just think, you know, with with them being reversed, um, I just think you know, twelve to one is is nuts. And if he can avoid trouble at the at the first bend, which isn't a given, um, he can he can go close here. And I think, you know, an each way bet top two at, the, at those odds is 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 worthwhile for sure. Yourself, Danny, what do you reckon? Well, I thought Golden Palace could be a bit of a gatekeeper to King Memphis, and that would leave it open to me uh, to trap one Cat Island because. He's been showing the most consistent early pace in the race. He won, um, sorry, came second behind Golden Palace in the first round just by a short head. Then he was a winner um, last time out and he, he, you know, he won by a length and a half, beat Queen Dusty, absolutely cracked out with a 382 split. And if he gets that split and the trouble happens in behind, which I think it could because there are a couple that want the rail, you know, you're looking at Longfellow who was in one last time, King Memphis who was in one last time, they're in two and four respectively. I do think Cat Island might just have the run of the race here on the inside. And of course, trained by the master trainer, Mark Wallace too. So he's been champion trainer many, many times. And I think he has got Cat Island cherry ripe for this competition and he's got a great draw on the inside. So he would be the one for me. Yeah, I, I agree. I think Cat Island's definitely got a good chance. I mean, as I said, King Memphis, um, you know, also t- top, top puppy, but he's one, if I was a bookie, you know, from Trap 4 and with the makeup of the race, as you say, is one I'd be trying to probably uh, lay, certainly, at odds on. But we'll see. And uh, yeah, an exciting final in store tonight. Certainly is. Now we move on to Saturday and the action at Perry Bar. At 11 minutes past nine, we have six bitches going paw to paw in the Premier Greyhound Racing Oaks final of 2023. Trap one is Starshine Stunner, two What's Up Eva, three Droopy's Request, four Jetstream Angel, five Droopy's Ailsa and six No Rush. Well, I think many people have been listening to the podcast will know I absolutely love Trap Six, No Rush from the Carol Weatherall's uh, kennel. And this is her swan song. If she's going to win a category one, this is the one she wins. This is her final race of her career. She has been absolutely sensational for connections throughout her career. She won really well in the semifinals uh, last week. She won by a length and a half, beat Droopy Zelsa, 28.05 the time. The rest of them have got three or more spots to make up on her. She's got some... Well, she's got a decent early pace, but she's got that staying power as well. No rush. She really does close them down in the closing stages. She's got the draw. Everything is right for her. It's primed for her to go off with a Cat 1 win in the Oaks on Saturday. And I can't look past her. Might be heart overhead, but actually I think my head is uh, would have been in agreement anyway, Joe, to be honest. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Um, I think, you know, 
we say it quite a few times about certain greyhounds, you know, deserves to win a Cat 1. But if any greyhound out there does deserve to win a Cat 1, it has to be no rush, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, is this her sixth Cat 1 final or fifth? I can't. She's been in a lot <laughs> of Cat 1 finals. Yeah. Uh, and, and and it just well, it hasn't happened for her. But she's got everything in her favour to, to, um, on Saturday night, as you said. Um you know, it's it could get messy inside. I know it's a cliche to always say when there's five railers and one, you know, middle or or wide that it that it could get messy. But you know, what's up? Eva could get away well, but she's not quite been seeing it out as strongly. You know, she's she's getting on a little bit herself. Um, but they're all of the other dogs, the railers that will be coming in have got similar splits um, and no rush. Now, as you said again, Danny has got a great, you know, can show great early pace. If she can get out well, she can avoid the trouble and, um, you know, she'll see it out strongly. And I do think two to one is a, a fair price and I really hope she wins it. And I, I, I do think she can um, in the Oaks. And uh, then we'll get to see some no rush pups coming soon. And, uh, you know, I wish wish her well in the Purdis because, um, yeah, she, she certainly deserves it, I think. Little rushies on the ground, <laughs> they will be so so cute. And then we've got the big big final on Sunday as well. We've got an absolute cracker of a weekend, and we'll round off with at uh, Central Park the Premier Greyhound Racing Kent Derby final of 2023. This is a who's who trap one, Romeo Command, two is King Ezra, three, Asbo Lenny, four, Droopy's Clue, five, Churchfield Sid, and six, Havana Lover. I mean. Droopy's clue looks set to maybe take Greyhound of the Year accolades. Certainly, if he wins another Category One and over a different trip, you know, four nine one at Central Park. I mean, he's just a machine. I've seen him live a couple of times now, and he just blasts them away. And he's so quick. He stays so well. You could chuck quite a few trips at him, I think, and he would just outclass them. Um, he's in a really, really good field here. But I genuinely don't think anyone's going to land a glove on him. What do you reckon, Joe? Yeah, well, when I obviously look, we've we've seen the heat. He broke the track record incredibly in the in the heats, and then he broke his own track record again uh, last week in the semi-finals. You know, he he won at Perry Bar over seven ten, obviously. Um, you know, breaking the track record then, and he's dropped back significantly <laughs> in trip. You know, this isn't a five hundred at Toaster, four nine one at Central Park. It takes a bit again, but considering he's been winning the way he has over six bends, just just ridiculous. He is a, a very very talented greyhound, and I think you're right. If he was to win, he he definitely be shortlisted for Ground of the Year, and uh, you know, in, incredible incredible dog. And when I looked at the the odds um, when I was looking at the race for the final. I was surprised to see him at six to five. However, when I looked in a bit more detail and started getting under the bonnet, I, I do think Churchfield Sid could be the fly in the ointment here. He's obviously unbeaten himself to the final, um, you know, winning quite comfortably as well. You know, he is, you know, what you'd say more of a sort of traditional four bend dog. Um, and he's got the early pace here. And I think that if he can get away, which he, he should, to be honest, you know, he, he should be leading at the bend. Um, you know, when a dog of his ability, it's going to be hard for Droopy's clue over the four bends here to to reel in a dog like Churchfield Sid. So I, I do think, um, although I'll probably be cheering on Droopy's clue, I do think Churchfield Sid at nine to four is is the bet in the race and, and is the value rather than odds on for Droopy's clue. But who knows? It, you know, I think he might find it a little bit harder to replicate those couple of runs with a dog like you know, Churchfield Sid in the race. So, uh, yeah, he, he'd he be the one for me against the favourite. But mouthwatering clash in store on Sunday, you know, 
Friday, Saturday, Sunday, three amazing Cat 1 finals. Uh, Greyhound racing, that's what it's all about. Looking forward to it. Cannot wait. And I mean, we can't ignore Romeo Command either on the inside because he's drawn well. He, he He's, you know, rails to mid, kind of mid to rails, but I think he's got a good draw on the inside because he's going to slot in behind King Ezra. And we know this lad stays as well, every yard of this 491. And he's always a dangerous dog to underestimate Romeo Command. So if he's any kind of decent yeah. price, he'd be interesting. He certainly would be. And he has got a chance, there's no doubt. I just think he might struggle with King Ezra outside him. Mm. Um, you know, he might get boxed in a little bit, and then you know he, he's got to have a clear run to beat Troopers Clue, Churchfield Sid, and these sorts of dogs. I'm not sure he'll get it 100, but he's nine to two, so you know that he, he's he's a fair price. Can I also say as well, shout out to the Richard Reese team for getting Churchfield Sid over his injury and into these kind of finals. He's absolutely superb with this lad, and long may it continue for Churchfield Sid. Here, here. Now, that is the coverage of our three big finals this weekend. Uh, we don't have time to dive into anything else because we did obviously have a fantastic interview with Floyd Amplett from the Greyhound Star. If you have enjoyed what we've been doing on Gone to the Dogs, make sure you do like, subscribe, review, do all that jazz if you can. It does boost our ratings on all different charts that we uh, keep an eye on and the ones that go green and, and move us up, we keep an eye on them even closer. Uh, the ones that keep putting us down, uh, we ignore. But <laughs> gone to the dogs. Very grateful for all of your support. And Jay, once again, it's been an absolute pleasure. We've had a great one. Yeah, another great episode, Danny. Thanks very much. Enjoyed the interview with Floyd um, and everything else uh, either side. And we should actually be back in two weeks this time because I think we're both around. So, uh, yeah, we, we should genuinely be a fortnightly podcast once again. We will indeed. Uh, so see you soon, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to Gone to the Dogs, released every other Friday. For more info or to reach out on Twitter, follow at Totally Betting and at Danny V. Jackson. Podcast produced and edited by Joe Andrews and Danny Jackson. Voiceover by Katie Harvey.